What's up guys, Pastor John here. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey and we believe that God has an incredible plan for your life and our hope is that tools like this sermon will help you become who he has created you to be. Now listen, in order to truly flourish and thrive like God intends for your life, it takes community. What I mean by that is we don't believe that simply by attending church online alone that you're going to be able to become every bit of who God has created you to be and who you want to be to grow spiritually. You need other people. And we would love to help you connect with other people right here at Greenhouse. True growth happens when we're rooted in a community that supports, uplifts, and walks alongside us. And so with that in mind, we would love for you to join us in person on Sundays right here at Western High School or in microchurches throughout the week. Um, listen, if you don't live near our church here in South Florida, please reach out to us. We would love to help you find and thrive in a local faith community near you. We're excited to partner with you as we all become passionate followers of Jesus. God bless you. How many of you were here when Pastor Malik preached last week? Did a fantastic job, awesome sermon, awesome sermon. He got to talk about God's definition of success. What does success look like? I mean, it was amazing, inspiring, eye-opening, heartwarming. It was all of those things. If you missed it, check it out, podcast or our YouTube channel. Last week, Pastor Malik got to talk about success. This week, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter five, and the title is Expel the Immoral Brother. I don't know how this happened. Last week, Pastor Malik got to talk about God wants you to be successful in your lives and thriving. And this week I get to talk about incest and expelling the immoral brother. Who sets his preaching calendar? That's, that's right. It's me. Well, stand on your feet. Here we go. Uh, it took me a little while because this is an interesting passage, but I am very excited with what I feel will be tangibly helpful in your real lives. This morning, I want to talk about how do we deal with conflict and confrontation. Anyone ever had to deal with that before in life? Anybody ever been there? You know, life is challenging. Humans are challenging. We are some of them. How do you deal with conflict and confrontation? Check this. In a healthy, biblical, loving manner. Lots of people figure out their way to deal with conflict and confrontation. That does not mean it's the life-giving biblical way. A lot of us have experienced and had modeled for us, and I'm praying that God would speak to us through his word this morning. And if you are agreeing with me, say amen. amen. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I know some of you are wondering, and I just want to be a shepherd in your lives and let you know about the Miami Dolphins game. Not that I necessarily care, but I care about you, and some of you care, and so you should be very happy that you chose to be in the house of the Lord this morning because they are losing 21 to nothing. Yes, maybe if we worship a little harder, God will be merciful. It's not biblical, but it would be nice. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you're ready, say, let's do this. Remember, this is Paul preaching to the church at Corinth. Now, lest you thought we were exaggerating when we said this church was a mess and they had all sorts of issues, here is his peppy little introduction to chapter five. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Somebody say gross. And you're proud about this. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Now, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, you're like, yeah, I'm ready for it. Present this man over to Satan. What in the world? 
present this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. All right. Verse six, you're boasting, it's not good. Don't you know that a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven works through the entire batch of dough? Let's pray. Lord, please help. Amen. Turn to ever give him a high five, say, get ready. Get ready. My guess is you've never heard a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter five, because what crazy person would get up here and preach one? This guy, here we go. I'm gonna begin like this. Have you ever seen something bad happening and you were not quite sure what to do or if you should do anything at all? You ever been there before at that moment of indecision? I remember several months ago, I got thrust into the throes of World War III. Now we do not call it World War III, but as parents, we know that's exactly what it is. We call it back to school shopping. Can I get an amen? Come on, somebody. Back to school shopping. Now, if you are still a student, you're like, back to school shopping is amazing. Yeah, that's because it's not your money. But back to school shopping, your wallet disappears and people's humanity disappears simultaneously. We, I, I was there trying to, I'm at this uniform store that will remain nameless for the preservation of the individuals thereof. I was at this uniform store and, and thank the good Lord above, my wife, who is an amazing Proverbs 31, virtuous woman, ordered online, thank God. And so I'm just trying to get in there, like duck under the grenades, grab the clothes and get out and, and, and save myself from the carnage that is back to school uniform shopping. But there would be none of that on this illustrious afternoon. I walked into a legit war zone. Clothes are everywhere and adults are screaming at one another. I am not exaggerating, screaming at one another. I walk in, there's like the, the mall security the, with the flashlight, you know, he's, he's in there and, um, and there are grown adults yelling at one another about something. And so I kind of like awkwardly walk up to the counter and I'm like, hi, for lash? <laughs> You know, and, and, and so I'm there and it's taking all of this extra time because these adults are yelling. I don't know what happened before, but you've got this lady yelling at the employee and they're going back and forth and they're just screaming. And all of these kids are watching this scenario. I'm like, who are the adults in this situation right now? So they're kind of yelling. Now I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man of God. And so I, saw, I thought to myself, what wouldest the good Lord do on this occasion of yelling? I had no idea. <laughs> but I watched, you know, you watch these like super inspirational spiritual YouTube videos and people like walk into these scenarios. Like, I was in a war zone and the Holy Spirit said, stand up and take off your bulletproof vest. And the bullet stopped. And you're like, I'm like, what do I? So I, I was legitimately like, Lord. I just preached a sermon about being a peacemaker. I'm like, I don't wanna be a hypocrite. I'm like, Lord, if you want me to do something, tell me. And, and the adults did not even get better at the prayers of the righteous. They availeth nothing in this moment. They just, they just start getting, I mean, they devolve to the level of middle schoolers. They are legit cracking on one another's teeth at this point. I'm like, what are we doing? And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, Lord, what do I, and, man, I gotta be honest, this is not some hero story, I got nothing. I was just like, thank you so much, God bless you. <laughs> 
I saw no way that this situation could be de-escalated. I'm like, I'm just not gonna escalate it. I just kind of smiled at everyone and was like, oh God, have mercy. You ever been there? Like maybe you're disappointed in your pastor. Listen, pray for me, I'm a human being. I didn't know what to do. But you ever been there? You're like, I, I, I know we're supposed to like be Jesus people and peacemakers and like, but like, how? How? What in the world? How do we know when to confront evil, wrongdoing, misalignment? It's one thing if it's a stranger and you're like, I don't really know them, they don't really know me, I only feel like this is gonna make it worse, but, but it happens with people in our lives that we do know. Like, you've got that friend and, and they're moving full force back into that toxic relationship and you see it clear as day. You've got that coworker and they've battled with addiction, but you see all the telltale signs that they're on their way back into that downward spiral. You've got a friend in your microchurch and you journeyed with them in this path towards freedom and whatever sort of a, a, a vice, a sin that was holding them back and you've watched them get free and now you see them beginning to walk down that path and you know where it's gonna lead. How do we know when to lovingly, appropriately confront we feel all this pressure. A lot of it is culturally engaged. Well, it's, it's not my business. You know, I, I, I don't know. This is between, uh, I don't want them to think I'm judging them or we get real spiritual about it. And we're like, well, this is between them and God. And then we go talk to three other people. And it's like, do you think you're God? Or, or you just a gossip? I don't understand what's happening here. Like, but, but we struggle. Like, how do we know when to confront? And if we know when, how are we supposed to do it? I think we would probably all agree that our culture is not modeling this in a fantastic way for us. Like this is not a cultural strength of ours. Oh, we confront, but we confront in all sorts of nasty, wicked, mean-spirited, wrong ways. And for many of us, maybe most of us in this room, we have had it modeled for us much more poorly than we ever have modeled in a healthy way. On one hand, we got the religious approach. It's like the judgmental, mean Pharisee that just condemns everybody. And on the other side, we have this approach that guised in what might be called love, it's like this toxic tolerance where we're like, oh man, I, I just don't wanna offend, uh, who am I? And, and, and we, in the name of tolerance, we let somebody that we love waltz their way to destruction. Are those the only two options? Be a jerk or be a jerk? Is that really it? Or is there another way? How do we confront? How do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with, with challenges, with evil, with sin, with, with, with relational friction in a healthy, appropriate, loving, biblical way? Now, we, before we go any further into the conversation, I wanna set up the scene. I know we've got people coming from different backgrounds. Some of us might be exploring faith and spirituality. And so let me set the scene according to the scriptures. In the scriptures, we're told that God loves people, but he hates sin. Now, to give you a simple operating definition for sin, sin is anything that goes contrary to God's ways, which, by the way, are designed for our flourishing and thriving, not to spoil our fun. God hates sin. In fact, God is what, what the Bible calls kadosh. Everybody say kadosh. It's Hebrew. Y'all are so learned now. Kadosh, he's, he's holy, he's set apart. God is so holy, so kadosh, that he cannot even be in the presence of sin. God is against sin, but it's not just that. Sin is actually against us. 
Scripture tells us that while sin is fun, it's enjoyable, it's pleasurable for a season, while there are ways that go against God's ways that sound good and feel good even in the moment, their end result is what? Death. Ultimately, if you flesh that out to its full culmination, this is an eternity of separation from God, an eternal death, if you will. This is what the scripture calls hell, but it's not just an eternity of suffering. Sin brings relational death as well. Sin brings death wherever it goes, death to relationships, relationships with people, relationships with God. And because God loves us, it further fuels his hatred for sin. Do you understand? The enemy of my friend is my enemy. And it begs the question, if God hates sin, he is in opposition to sin, he confronts, he is in conflict with sin, how does God confront or what does God do about sin and evil that he hates? You're like, John, stop asking questions and start answering questions. Fair. Big idea if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this down on your phone with a pen, a pencil. If you have one of those rarities, here is the big idea that we'll unpack together. We confront others like God confronts us. We confront others the way God confronts us. We confront others the way God confronts. I was hoping you guys would say that with me because I've said it a few times. It's fine, it's fine, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. I feel all by, all by myself up here, all by myself. It's fine, don't worry about it. All right. Let me unpack what I mean, three stopping points along the way to learn to confront like Heavenly Father confronts, to deal with conflict like Heavenly Father deals with conflict. The first stopping point is this, the heart behind the confrontation matters. Everybody say, it's all about the heart. Turn to neighbor and say, it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. Now here's the context of this passage. What is happening in this passage is there is a, a brother, a, a, a supposed self-professing follower of Jesus, a Christian who is actively living in sin, namely he is sleeping with his father's wife and everybody knows about it. It's kind of brazen and he's kind of out there with it and that's what he's doing. Uh, Bible scholars and commentaries say that most likely his father would have been alive, so it's most likely adultery that he's sleeping with his father's wife, if not some level of incest. Either way, it's something that is so egregious that Paul's like, listen, not even your neighbors who don't follow Jesus would think this was cool, and they're doing this kind of thing. And, and so it, I'm assuming that there's no one in this room that is in that spot right now, uh, or online, or in Guyana, uh, but if you are currently right now sleeping with your father's wife, stop it. Amen? Okay, cool. Um, so that would be the end of the sermon if, because Paul was writing a letter and he's, that's not the end of the sermon. What, what this letter and specifically this chapter requires is what is called hermeneutics. This is an appropriate dividing of scriptures. So you're rightly dividing God's word. What this means is we consider what, what was the intent of the original human author, namely Paul to the Corinthian church, and what was the heavenly intent of the ultimate author, namely God, and we derive principles that apply even though I am hoping to God, God willing, the exact situation does not apply. You guys tracking with me? So what are the principles that Paul is unpacking? I think the principles are extremely apropos for our current cultural moment. See, the Corinthians saw themselves as mature spiritually, namely because they did nothing about this situation. 
I don't know if you've ever encountered a culture like that before, but the Corinthians said, oh man, we're so tolerant. We just let everybody do whatever they want. Aren't we amazing? You ever met a culture like that before? They said, man, we don't, we don't judge anybody. Matter of fact, we let people do whatever they want. I would call this toxic tolerance. This is like, you know what? My best friend, they just love Tide Pods. They love the flavor. They love the sensation. And who am I to judge? I don't want to tell them to stop eating them. That would be so judgmental of me. So you love your friend to death. Toxic tolerance. Y'all tracking with me? It's bad logic. Bad logic. This community thought, man, we're so mature in the grace of God. It, it doesn't even bother us that Buddy's celebrating incest. Matter of fact, we're like, check us out. Isn't that awesome? And Paul's like, Y'all are crazy. No, that's not awesome. He's eating Tide Pods. Tell him to stop. It's toxic tolerance. Now, on the flip side, we have the religious approach. If the cultural approach, and I would argue that is our culture, one of our gods is image and appearance in our culture, South Florida in particular. If you've got the, the toxic tolerance on one side, you get the religious approach, which I would call toxic targeting. This is the, we are going on a spiritual witch hunt and we're going after everybody. This is the, I am looking for people to call out. I am looking for people. It's this mean, judgmental, often it's pharisaical, it's hypocritical. You're yelling at one person for the sin that you don't struggle with. Meanwhile, you do the other sin, you say nothing else about it, right? It's, it's, it's toxic tolerance on one side of the wrong coin, and it's toxic targeting on the other side of the coin when it comes to religious people. And often, if you do not appropriately, hermeneutically divide this passage, you will use this as an excuse to be mean spirited and judgmental in the name of being biblical or hardcore. But if that's what you get out of the passage, you have missed the heart of God. I'll prove it to you. Look at verse 14 of chapter four. This is what Paul says. He says, I am not writing this letter to what? I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. He says, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, meaning you have a lot of people that'll preach a lot of things, but it's really about them, it's not about you. That'll preach to say. He said, though you have 10,000 guardians, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. He says, the point of this whole letter is not to make you feel bad about yourselves, although you should feel bad. The point is, I want you flourishing and thriving, and you are on a path to destruction, and I want you to change because I love you. The point's not redemption. The point is to awaken these followers of Jesus to the reality that they already know but have forgotten because we all struggle with temporary spiritual amnesia. Sin destroys relationships. This is why God hates it so much. It destroys relationship with God. It destroys relationship with one another. And God hates, hates. That's not a mispronunciation. That is accurate to the Bible. He hates sin. However, the way God deals with sin confounds the most mature believer and the most astute theologian because God deals with confrontation. God deals with conflict. God deals with sin in a way that nobody else does on the planet. He deals with it with one powerful word, grace. Grace. When I say we confront others the way God confronts us, I'm saying we confront others in Grace. Turn to a neighbor and say, gracia. 
Gracia, la lengua de los cielos. Grace, we confront others with grace. Here's an operating definition. Grace, the grace of God is the unmerited mercy and favor of God in our lives. We get good that we do not deserve because of the goodness of Jesus. Here's an operating definition for relational grace, namely what grace could look like in our relationships, especially when there's friction. Here it is. Relational grace, an unmerited heart posture that leads to loving action with the end goal of right relationship. An unmerited heart posture, meaning it is better than the person deserves. Well, they don't deserve it. Exactly. Now you're on the right track. An unmerited heart posture that leads to loving action with the end goal of right relationship. This is why the heart behind the confrontation matters. So why confront? Why confront? Why step into that space of almost for sure, to some degree, awkwardness? Number one, it's, it's out of love. It's, it's for the person. Look at verse five in chapter five. Paul writes and he says, I want you to confront, to hand this man over to Satan. Why? To shame him? No. So that the sinful nature may be destroyed. What is against him and his eternal flourishing may be destroyed so that his spirit might be saved. He says the whole point of this confrontation is an action that ultimately leads to repentance, a changing of the mind, a changing of heart, a changing of direction. Why? Because you're realizing the individual is in danger and because you care about them, you wanna warn them so they don't die, they live. The reminder here from Paul is, is that you are actively being transformed in one way or the other. You either have the Holy Spirit's conviction or the devil's corruption as a result of sin. That's how it works. None of us is staying at neutral. We're either growing or we're withering. Those are the only paths. Why confront? Because you, well, Paul says, because you love them. Because you want their spirit to be saved. You want the redemption that Jesus purchased to be fully enacted in their lives because you realize that this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Anybody been boneheaded walking the wrong direction before? Come on, somebody, breakthrough. You ever been there before, right? And you're like, man, I remember when I was an idiot and God came and he wasn't a jerk. He was merciful, he was loving, he was kind, but he was clear. Son, you need to change direction. And by his grace, I did. And because he loved me enough to step into that awkward place, I love others that much as well. See, the heart behind the confrontation matters. Because you love them enough to make yourself uncomfortable. This is extremely uncomfortable. You ever step into a situation where someone is walking in a dangerous direction, but they don't see it, which, by the way, is mostly the case. We are chronically poor self-assessors. And you see it clear as day, but they're so in it, they don't see it. And you're like, oh, I really hope this goes well, but it is so awkward. Why would you step in like that? Because you have a heart of love for that person. Because you have a heart like your father of a rescuer. By the way, if you, lest you think, well, man, this is just some isolated random verse from Paul to these ancestral Corinthian weirdos. Um, this this idea of confrontation, godly confrontation, it's not just Paul, it's Jesus too. In Matthew 18, which is a great passage to memorize and live by, by the way, in a culture that does very poorly with conflict, this is what Jesus says. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go to them directly and point out their fault, just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, look at, look at what the heart posture is. You have won them. It's all about winning them back, not pushing them away. 
If they listen, man, mission accomplished. You made them feel horrible. Nope, mission accomplished. Now they know that you're much better than them spiritually. No, you have won them over. But he goes on, verse 16, this is Jesus. He's our rabbi, he's our teacher. We exist to help ordinary people become passionate followers of. All right, so listen up, this is important. Jesus says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The idea here is you've got, most likely if you've got some sort of public thing, you know a friend, they're in your community, they're walking down a dangerous path, you're not the only one who realizes it, other people do too. And hopefully you have a few other people in your community that love that person enough to say, man, I was thinking the same thing. I was, man, let's go talk to them together. So they realize, hey, it's not just me. I'm not just some crazy person. Bro, we see it. Sister, we see it and we're concerned for you. He says, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, it's the same language, tell it to the church. Now you're hoping they're like, oh my gosh, everybody sees it? Man, I might need, I might really be in danger. Thank you, guys. Tell it to the church. And if they still refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What are you praying for, for a pagan or a tax collector? That they experience God's love and kindness, repent and turn back to him. The purpose of this whole diatribe by Paul in chapter five is not about destroying people or shaming people. It's not about destroying them. It's about restoring them. We confront others the way God confronts us with grace, an unmerited heart posture that leads to loving action with the end goal of right relationship. Why? Because this is what Jesus did for us. Why confront? Number one, it's for the person. It's they have someone in their lives that loves for them and cares them enough to tell them hard truths out of a place and a heart posture of love. But also number two, this is sort of insightful from Paul here. It's for not just the individual, but it's for the community. Look at verse six, chapter five. He says, you're boasting. Apparently, they were boasting about this scenario. You're boasting. It's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, a little leaven, it works its way through the whole batch of dough? He says, listen, you've got to understand if you're just dealing with this individual outright living in blatant sin, you're celebrating it even, what you are doing is you're giving a license to everybody else to do the same and a little unrepentant sin tolerated leads others down the same path, ultimately to their suffering and potentially destruction. Now, at first take, especially according to our North American sensibilities, this sounds harsh and maybe heartless, but it's actually very wise and loving. Let me prove it to you. How many of you have gone to school? How many of you had a kid in class that decided that his mission in life and his calling and destiny was to make everybody else laugh in the class? How many of you were that kid in the class, all right? Now, now what what a good seasoned veteran teacher will do that cares for the classroom is they will identify, oh, this student needs to be addressed and corrected. And if not remedied quickly, it will have consequences and ramifications, not just for the student in their entire life, but for all the rest of the class as well. And so out of a heart of love and concern, they will directly address the issue, right? Right? And they'll start how? One-on-one. They'll pull the student aside. Hey, I noticed today you're kind of acting up. I like your personality, but you got to learn when to use it appropriately in class. I just want to, right? But they're going to address it. Because if not, they're not loving the student. They're not helping the student grow. They're, they're, they're allowing the student to self-sabotage, which will follow them for the rest of their lives. If they care, they have to address it. They'll start small, but then the student keeps acting up. 
then they might escalate. Then they might say, hey, listen, I've warned you. Now you got, and at some point, if the student is belligerent in the persistent action, they will realize in order to care for the student, I need to remove them from the classroom so that the other students are number one, not distracted by the issue. And number two, they don't follow suits because we're a bunch of lemmings. We all follow what we see. We're creatures of habit. We are imitators by nature. Now, the end goal, if they, again, if this is a good teacher, do they want the student out of the classroom banished forever? What's their goal? Shift of heart, change of behavior, reintegration into the classroom. We would all say, man, that's a seasoned, great, loving teacher, wouldn't we? So does God. So does God. He says, listen, you're watching this person not live his best life, live his worst life to his sole detriment, and y'all are like... Way to go, buddy. He's like, what are you doing? You're loving him to death. You don't care. You don't care. Or you do care, but you care more about you than you do about him. Once dealt with, the goal is reintegration, but if never addressed, if never removed, people never grow. And the community around suffers as well. Paul says, listen, you guys are proud of your toxic tolerance. Like in verse two, he, he goes back, he says, listen, you're, you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? They were, they were prideful in their distortion of grace. Now, uh, Bible historians and commentators believe that most likely what's happening is that this individual who's living in this outright blatant sin, sleeping with his father's wife, is most likely one of the leaders of one of those faction groups. Remember, they were dealing with division, remember earlier in the series? Most likely, he was one of the leaders, and because he was probably so charismatic and gifted, they were wor- willing to ignore character flaws and deficiencies because he was their guy and he made them look good because he was so spiritual and ways or the opposition group were the ones not doing anything about it because they loved gloating about man yeah you guys are part of this faction but your leader's a mess and Paul says you should be lovingly confronting and restoring him not gloating about how great he is or how bad he is and he chides them he says listen you fancy yourselves mature but you don't even know how to deal with sin and immorality in the family you're not mature you're childish it's interesting because the actual sin itself is not what Paul is responding to. He's just like, yeah, yeah, we all know this is wrong. Duh, even the, even the pagans know that. What he's specifically spending his time on is the way the community is responding to the sin. Namely, they are not responding at all without any sort of loving correction, appropriate discipline, or a plan for restoration. If you remember earlier, and you probably understand now, there's some intense subject matter. Next week, we're talking all about sex and sexuality, so that'll be another easy one. Throw me some softballs here. Paul begins this whole letter, though, talking about identity. He begins this whole letter to these Corinthians, reminding them of who they are. You are saints in Jesus. You are are called by God, gifted by God, loved by God. He's reminding them, be who you are. If we reminded people more of who they are, we wouldn't have to tell them so much what to do. And he's hearkening them back to say, listen, Corinthians, listen, Greenhouseians, you're saints. Be who you are. You're not ancestral weirdos. You're saints. I I can only imagine as he's writing this letter, face palming, like, really? Am I having to write this? Really? Really? The heart behind the confrontation matters. Number two, the way you engage in the confrontation matters. The call is words of truth, 
saturated with kindness. Words of truth saturated with kindness. You ever had someone call you on the carpet on something and they were right? You ever been in that spot before? I remember early on in the church planting journey, my wife and I had moved back here to South Florida. I'm from here originally, and, um, and I was having a conversation. I had a coach that I would meet with weekly, and we would talk through pastoral challenges and leadership challenges. And Pastor Robbie, some of you remember him, an amazing mentor and disciple and leader and friend in my life. And, uh, and, I, and I was just having a, a challenging situation with, with another leader, and I was going back and forth. And I'm like, ah, oh, man. And we're, I was talking it through. And you know, you're just kind of venting, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so I was just kind of you know, airing it out there. And we had 17 years of friendship together. And so I'm just going. And, and he just he listened appropriately. He was a good empathic listener. He did all that great stuff. And, and I get done. He's like, man, John, I hear you. That's a really tough situation. He said, but bro, um, your heart just sounds wrong towards this person. And um, I think you just need to repent. <laughs> and no one likes to hear that. But like, I knew this guy didn't hate me. Like, we've been friends for 17 years. I, I knew he was actually, if anything, he's one of those friends, those rare friends that you find that will tell you the truth whether you want to hear it or not. You know those, those type of friends? Because they care about you. And so I just took that conversation in, and I was like, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm going to, we, we ended the conversation right there. I'm, like, I'm not going to say anything else. I'm going to pray and get God's heart. And he was right. And I needed a heart check because I'm a human. And it was amazing. And he's a friend that I've kept close ever since because you need friends in your life like that. And what I found interestingly unique about this passage is it is very easy to get into judgment zone about this 2,000-year-old church that's such a mess. You're like, oh my gosh, can you believe it? Gross. They can't even, and they don't even do anything about it? That's crazy. And then we fancy ourselves so mature in our 21st century American, North American Christian church framework when someone offends us and we don't have the maturity to go to them directly. Instead, we go to six other friends so they can pray for us about the situation that we enumerate in extensive details rather than doing what the Bible says in Matthew 18 and going to the person directly. Shots fired. And I get it, like, that's what we have modeled for us in our culture. Just to be clear, I know we realize this, we do conflict resolution horribly in our cultural setting. Your boss does something crazy, what do you do? Oh, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then you go and send a message to all the court, can you believe this idiot and what they just did? I'm sure you don't say idiot because you're so sanctified. You say misaligned person. <laughs> Can you believe, oh my gosh, this coworker. Oh, hey man, it's great to see you. Wow, I love that presentation. You're right, if I was blind. Like, we, this is what we do, right? This is work culture, this is life. We don't do this kind of stuff, but Jesus did. And Jesus called us to. The Corinthians didn't do it right. Yeah, neither do we. It's how we used to roll. It's how everybody else rolls. But if you follow Jesus and you're still rolling like the culture, you are not mature. And you need to, I'll say it with a smile, repent. You need to repent. Jesus called us to do conflict resolution in a very different way. Jesus called us to confront evil in a very different way. Jesus told us to care about people in a deeper way than, hey, man, great to see you. I think you're going to die soon because you're making horrible decisions. Awesome. Love you. Because if we're being truly honest, our fear is not that they might 
Our fear is that I might be seen as a. We're not fundamentally thinking about them. They're in danger. We're fundamentally thinking about us and our relational capital that might be in danger if we get perceived as. Jesus is like, I just care more about people's souls than I do what they think about me. As disciples of Jesus, we approach confrontation, sin, and conflict like Jesus. Go figure, right? As his disciples, we approach confrontation like him, sin, challenges, relational friction. And this is how Jesus was described in John 1.14. It says, Jesus, the word, became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We saw his glory. He came from the Father, full of, and here it is, grace and truth. Grace and truth. Now, most of us have a default setting where you're really strong in one and you struggle with the other. How many of you would know I am a grace person? I will kind you to the heavens and back. I am a grace person, sugar sweet. My daughter Lucia is like that. Some of us are truth people. We're like, well, I'm just gonna give it to you straight and you can take it or leave it. Do you have a friend like that? Anybody have a friend like that? Maybe you are the friend like that. Yep, that would be our son, Liam. Um, Jesus was amazing in that he was full of both. And followers of Jesus are called to be like Jesus in that we are full of both as well. The way you engage in the confrontation, it matters. It's words of truth saturated with kindness because the goal is to reconcile, not to cancel. The goal is to restore and see redeemed, not to punish and shame. We confront others like God confronts us. Here's a really simple framework. Something goes wrong relationally. You're watching someone in a danger zone. You're like, man, what do I do? I feel like I'm supposed to do something. Ask the question, how does God confront me when I'm in the wrong? How does God confront me when I'm a hot mess? Treat other people like that. Treat other people like God treats you. The heart behind the confrontation matters. The way you engage in the confrontation matters, but, but it's possible to do all of those things and and you still find yourself in a challenge. It's, it's possible, and I hope you're seeing and connecting the dots, like immediately when something happens, like, oh man, I'm, especially if you're a truth person, I'm gonna tell them what I think. I'm gonna tell them what God's word says. I'm gonna preach to them right now. And you're like, mm, probably don't have God's heart for them in that moment. You might wanna chill out, sit down, and get God's heart first. The heart behind the confrontation matters. And, but then you can say, okay, I've gotten God's heart, and you go in, and you're not demonizing. You're like, you did, and you're pointing the finger, and you're all irate. That's never gonna go well. You're like, the way I'm gonna approach it, I'm gonna be full of grace and truth, but you can go with the right heart and the right manner and still not have things work out, right? Which is why point number three, the end results of the confrontation matter. Prayers aim for reconciliation and restoration. The question is, what if I do the right thing in the right way and it still doesn't work? Which is the genius of the scripture here and what Paul says, verse nine. He says, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. By the way, the sexual ethics of the Bible is that you are only sleeping with the person you are married to only. That's it. Very simple, supernaturally difficult, but very simple. I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He says, but not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. He's like, duh. Duh. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or a sister, but is living sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a person, do not even 
eat. Here's the guidance. Paul says, if you're dealing with someone that is not a a Christian, they're not saying they follow Jesus, they're not a Jesus follower, and they're acting like they don't follow Jesus, yeah, they don't. Remember when you didn't follow Jesus, how you acted? Like if you're a breakthrough and you're like, God, everything I've been doing, I give it to you, I wanna follow you, and then you go back to your old friend, so you're like, oh my gosh, these heathens. Uh, Remember last week? (laughs) Right? He's like, listen, if you're like, how, I, my, my friend in microchurch, they've been inviting their coworker, and their coworker hit this real rough patch, and they finally came, and they showed up in microchurch, and the first thing they said was, man, F this. What do I do? They have cussed with the people of the Lord. Yeah. You remember what your tongue was like before Jesus got a hold of it? You know what your tongue is still like now when you're in Miami traffic? Sanctification, people. If someone's on their journey, especially if they don't follow Jesus yet, you, you love them into the kingdom. And you allow, you treat them like God treats them. His kindness leads them to repentance. Belong before you believe, believe before you behave. He's like, that's what you do with a non-Christian. He's like, oh my gosh, my coworkers are all sleeping with people they're not married to. Do your coworkers follow Jesus? No. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But this is where it gets interesting. He says, now if you're dealing with a self-professing Christian, someone who claims to follow Jesus, and they are willfully sinning in unrepentant sin, in blatant sin. He says, what we do is we don't just pretend that it's all good. Oh man, it's fine, you know, don't worry about it. He said, that's not grace, agape, that's sloppy agape. Like that doesn't, that doesn't work. That's not what you do. He said, you don't just help them think that it's all good, and then even worse, spread that notion to other people. You lovingly tell them. Now, wait a second, John. If every single person that is not following Jesus perfectly gets confronted and then kicked out of the church, we would not have a church. Great point, right? So let's just clarify what exactly he's saying here. Um, how many of us, just show of hands, we're not glamorizing it, but I want us to all get a framework. How many of you have ever sinned before in your life? Keep your hands up if you have most likely sinned this month, this week. This very blessed day. Right? Different thing he's talking about here. What he's talking about here, now there's a journey of sanctification and we're growing from glory to glory and it's by grace we've been saved, not of works. What he's not saying is, anytime you find a Christian who's not perfect, go get them. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you have an individual that is actively and intentionally living a way that is opposite from the way of Jesus, while claiming to follow Jesus, you need to help them realize they're wrong and in danger. Because if you don't, they will end up somewhere they never thought they would. They're walking a path separating themselves from God, all the while thinking they're hanging out with God, and they're not, and you know it, and you don't tell them. How much do you have to hate them? Don't hate them, love them. Love them. Paul's talking about something very different. What he says here is he says, if you've got an individual in that spot where they are actively living in ways contrary to the word of God, and when confronted, they're like, man, you know, it's all good. You know, it is what it is, man. Grace, grace, grace. He's like, no, 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 that's not grace. If that's the case, don't even eat with them. This doesn't make any sense to our modern sensibilities, maybe. You're like, don't, no Chipotle, like what? In the ancient world... A meal was not just a meal. In the ancient world, a meal represented deep community and relationship. 
In the ancient world, a meal represented intimacy. What Paul is saying here is they're thinking, man, everything's cool with me and God. Don't sweat it. It's just, you know, it's just a little ancestral relationship I got here on the side. It's just a little bit of adultery. It's just a little bit of ongoing lust struggle. It's just a little bit of lying and grief. Don't worry, man, it's all good. And Paul's like, it's not all good. You need to let them know while they think they are an intimate communion and relationship with God, they are actually not and they are deceiving themselves. Don't let that happen. It's like if you got a friend, he's like, hey, man, you want to go out and play some catch? And you're like, sure, because the Miami Dolphins can't catch right now, apparently. And they're like, sure, let's go play some catch. And they're like, I'm going to go out and play catch on University Drive. And you're like, ah, not the best. But they're just adamant. And you're like, I don't think. And then they, get, they run out there, and they got the ball. And they're like, this is awesome. I've always wanted to do this. And the cars are whizzing by, and they're throwing you the ball. And you're like, all right, man. Paul's like, they're going to die. Don't throw the ball back. You start playing catch with someone on University Drive, you know that's what, what that's called? Culpability. You have now helped endear themselves to a lifestyle that will end in their untimely and tragic demise. You're like, well, I didn't do it. Yeah, but you threw him the ball. Instead, Paul says, hold the ball. Say, hey, bro, get out of the road, if You are being an idiot, if, and I love you. Get out of the street. Do something to help wake them up to the fact that they are in danger and it's not all good. Are you tracking with this analogy? Don't just throw the ball back while they're thinking, man, I'm fine. You see the cars whizzing by, love them enough to say, bro, we're not playing catch right now. You need to come back. Let's go to the field. That's where you're supposed to play ball. The one God made. Lord knows we've done this wrong. God knows. Some of us in the room have had this maybe done to us wrong. And we experienced either toxic tolerance or toxic targeting, religious, mean-spirited. But have you ever seen it done right? I have. I, I've watched followers of Jesus sit somebody down in tears and say, listen, man, I love you so much. I've watched God work in your life. I see you heading back in the direction of who you used to be, and I care about you. Stop. I've sat in conversations with members of our church family who did this. Heart of love and compassion. Say, man, I care about you so much. I, I see God's call in your life. I, I, I watch you walking in this direction. Don't do it, man. I'm begging you, turn around. Literal tears in their eyes. And I've watched that amount of self-abasing love do something. Shock someone out of their current situation. We're going to close in communion in just a second here, thinking about the incredible redeemer God who loves us so much that he gave his son so we can flourish and thrive in his path and his way. But I want us to pause for a moment for some questions for application. Here's the first question, and I think we're going to have them up on the screen. Do you have any friends in your life that would love you enough to warn you if you were stumbling into danger? Second question, is there anyone in your life currently that you are genuinely, deeply concerned about and you haven't told them that? And the follow-up there is, is that more about them? Well, I just don't want to offend. I don't want them to feel judged. I don't want them. Or is that actually more about you and how you might be perceived and your image? 
And then lastly, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a self-professing Christian Jesus follower? Are there any areas in your life where you are actively, willingly living in unrepentant sin? Again, this is different from, man, I love Jesus. I'm in the process. I mess up and I make mistakes, but I'm growing. That's a different animal. This is, I'm just belligerently saying, Jesus, I know you said that, but I don't really care. I'm gonna do my thing. And I wanna give space right now as we get ready to take communion to do one of the things that communion was used throughout the early church for, which is repentance which is this time, Paul said it like this. He said, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, invite God in. If you're here and you realize you don't have friends like that in your life, there's a bunch of amazing people in here who would love to be a friend like that to you. We have communities called microchurches. These are spaces where I've watched this happen in good, godly, loving, and appropriate ways. If you've got someone in your life and you've been concerned and you have not said anything, I'm praying that God would give you the love, the courage to say something and to do it in a way that reflects the heart of the Father full of grace and truth. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you know there are areas that you have not yet surrendered to his leading and his lordship, I am praying that you would do that. But I wanna keep these questions on the screen. And I want you to just take a minute for self-reflection. And God, I'm asking that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to the hearts of every single individual here, everyone watching online, every single person in Guyana, and Lord, call us deeper, not to shame us, not to harm us, but because you love us and want us to flourish and thrive like you intended. 